Let's stand together as we read God's word. Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. But rather, offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer yourselves to God. Offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God, that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now, offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Be seated. Paul makes a rather serious charge here in this passage. He says to all of us that we are all addicts. You you say, buddy, I I did not hear that term used in the passage to charge me of being an addict. And yet you heard a synonym of the word addict, which is to be a slave to something. Even to be a devotee of something means that it begins to take over in your life and it begins to dominate in your life. 
Now as we look around in our culture, we quickly understand what's going on among addictions. There, there are some addictions that are, that are rather evident and, and we see the damage done. You recognize that 70% of the people in state prison in Alabama today were addicts of some kind of alcohol or drug while they were arrested. 50 to 80% of child abuse cases involve some kind of addiction. A third of the homeless are addicted. It's the leading factor of finding out about spousal abuse. Is there some kind of addiction in the family? Recognize today that by the time someone is, a child grows to be 18 years old, one out of every four of those children will be exposed to some kind of alcohol or drug addiction. It's exploding in our country. And a lot of the problems we see in crime and other issues and the denigration of the family are directly tied to it. And over the last few years, you've probably noticed it's not all these illegal drugs that are really exploding in use. Their use has gone down. But it's prescription drug abuse that's gone way up and it's all around us. It is literally killing us. The latest studies say the life expectancy of someone who gets addicted to drugs, no matter what their age, is that they will live at best 15 to 20 years later. Now, here's what we got to understand this morning. Addiction is not simply enslavement to some kind of drug or alcohol. Addiction can be enslaved to a particular action. Uh, one recent highly acclaimed TV show sort of put all this together. I don't know if any of you watched Breaking Bad. But it was the story of a man named Walter White, who was a rather mild high school chemistry teacher who got cancer and figured out that he could make the best meth around, and he began to produce meth, at first part, to, to pay for his, uh, his cancer treatments. But as you watch the show, it went on and on and on and got worse and worse and worse. And Walter White destroyed literally his house, destroyed his family, destroyed many of his relatives. And a lot of people ended up being killed in the wake of this high school chemistry teacher who went meth king. And it's a crazy story. And when the final episode happens, he's talking to his wife one more time. He's got five minutes and he's told her all these years that, honey, the reason I'm doing this is I'm doing this because of the family. And I don't want you to be bankrupt. And when I end up dying, I want there to be money. And finally, she says, I will not listen to that answer. Look on the screens and see this quotation. Here's what he finally said. I did it for me. I did like it. I was good at it. And I really, I was alive. And guys, that's what any kind of addiction does for us. An addiction temporarily makes us feel alive. It puts us on a plane that we would not be without. But just like with Walter White, it killed him. It will destroy you. And that's what Paul is talking about in Romans 6. Here's the context of Romans chapter 6. The people are asking Paul, if grace is this wonderful, then why not, in our vernacular, why not party? Romans chapter 1 through 5, Paul has spent 1 through 5 explaining that salvation is something you receive, it's not something you achieve. That grace is a gift of God that you could never earn. And Paul even says the more sin you have, the more grace you get. 
And the logical argument from that was, okay, Paul, if you're right about that, why don't we all just go out and party and do whatever we want? Because if we get more grace, if we have more sin, let's have more sin to get more grace. And Paul has to go to Romans 6 to say, you don't understand what you're looking for. You don't understand what you're saying. And so this morning, I want you to see with me some things that Paul wanted them to understand so they did not go back into the wrong kind of addiction. Let's talk about this one first of all. And let's start in verse 16. Do you not know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one that you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. The first thing you've got to understand is you've got to understand slavery. The key word here is that you would offer yourself into slavery. You see, when you read in the Bible about slavery, don't equate it to 18th century American slavery. It was quite different. It was not racially based. It was not for a lifetime. It was something that you could volunteer yourself into. Let's say you have an overwhelming debt that you could never pay. Here's what you could do. You could find someone and say, I will become your slave for five or ten years. I'll do whatever you say and you pay my debt off. And so for years I would go into slavery. I would offer myself into slavery. That's what it was like. And here's what Paul's trying to say. Everyone has a master. Every one of us has somebody or something that we literally offer ourselves to. You see, listen to me. Everybody lives for something. Nobody escapes slavery. Nobody escapes addiction. It's just the choice of what you're addicted to. That's what Paul's saying. You see, what brings life to you? What made you feel alive? Was it an achievement? Was it a sports career? Was it a a business career? Was it money? Was it a political cause? Is it your family? Is it a person? Is it your own body and physical attractiveness? Was it a drug? What made you feel alive? Everybody's got one. And so we give ourselves to those. So the choice is this. There's just two choices. Either you give yourself to sin or to God. That's our choice. And a key word used in this passage is the word that sin will reign in your lives. It will rule your life. That's the problem with addiction. It starts by giving you life. But before long, what do you find? You find yourself enslaved to it. Where you've got to have the fix or you're in trouble. The problem is the fix last shorter and shorter period of time now there's a really interesting word in this passage and when he talks about giving yourself to evil desires the 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 greek word here is epi 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 desires it really is not to do with um per se sin Uh, some of the older versions would make you think it had to do with sexuality because it talks about lust it really has nothing to do with any of them an epi desire is an over-desire. It's a mega-desire. You see, what Paul is saying here is not only is it wrong for you to have desire for sinful things, it is wrong for you to have inordinate over-desire for good things. 
either can become bondage. For instance, if you have an over-desire for money, you offer yourself to the God of money. If you have an over-desire for material things, you offer yourself to the God of things. If you have over-desire for sex, what we call a sex addiction, you have made sex the God of your life. If you have an eating disorder, you may have an over-desire for thinness. If you're a workaholic, you may have an over-desire for achievement. If you're um, obsessed with sports, you may have an over-desire for your sports team. It might be a hobby. It might be hunting or fishing or golf or, or working out or you name it. But here's the problem. None of those things are sinful or wrong. They're, they're all good things. But Paul said you can get into slavery when you begin to have an over-epi-desire for those things. When they begin to control your life. Now, How could you tell if you had an over-desire? I want to give you a test. I want to give you a test, a, a three-pronged test of trying to figure out if maybe something in your life has enslaved you and has become too much of a desire. And here's the three things we're going to look at. Number one is anger. Does it make you really angry when you can't get what you want? Now, when something's blocked from any of us, we're a little bit disappointed. That's natural. Maybe you, are over, you have an over-desire to work out. And your workout schedule is messed up. That would be natural for you to, to be disappointed that you didn't get to work out. Or maybe you have an over-desire, you know, for achievement. And you don't make your goals this quarter work. And that would be natural to be disappointed. But if you become angry, if you lose it, if you blow up because what you wanted, you didn't get, it's gone too far. So what is it that you live for that, was, that when it is blocked really makes you angry? Another term would be fear. When something good is thwarted, when it's threatened, we all get a little worried. But if it becomes something ultimate, I begin to be paralyzed with fear. Maybe something you really wanted. Maybe you wanted to get married or you wanted to have children. Or you wanted your children to turn out a certain way, and it didn't happen. It, 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 it's right to be upset about that. It's, it's even right to, to pray about that. But it's an epi over-desire when it fills you with complete anxiety, and it paralyzes you. And, and one other part of the test is also what I would call sadness. When you lose something good... You get sad. It might take you months to get over. It might take you years. But when something becomes an epi-desire, an over-desire, and you lose it, you want to jump off a bridge. It's become too much. And so Paul's warning us, guys, that we can become slaves to all kinds of things. Guys, you can become slaves to people. 
Your whole happiness and joy is based on a person. It might be on your spouse. It might be on your child. It might be on your grandchild. But, but your life begins to, to work around that. And again, part of that is natural and beautiful. But in the long run, if it becomes an over-desire, when everything is based and, and you blow up if you can't see this person and you are too upset, you know, something happens. You see, here, here's what Paul's trying to say. Here's how you make sure you don't go back into the life of slavery. Do not live under the illusion that you can escape slavery. What Paul is saying is, if you're saying grace means I can do whatever I want, you're foolish. Because if you go out and do whatever you want to do, you will get enslaved to something. You don't have a choice of whether you're addicted or not. You'll be addicted to something. You've got to understand slavery. And that's what he's trying to tell us. Now let's go to the core of this passage. Go back to verse 3 through 5. He talks about their baptism. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Here's the key understanding here. We've got to understand unity. The unity we have in Christ. Here's these people thinking about going back into sin. Paul says, what you need to remember is what happened when you were baptized. The key words are unity with. What happened at baptism was more than you just getting wet, more than you just obeying, more than you just going through a process to check off a list to be saved. It was the moment where you were united with Jesus. Your life was matched with him. You are united with Christ's past and his future. His past is taking care of your sin problem because he paid the price. And he's also taking care of your future because he's secured your place with God on this earth and in eternity. As baptism is so significant in this passage. And baptism is like, it's like the wedding ceremony. You, you, you fall in love, but it's the wedding ceremony that finally says... Okay, not only I'm in love, but I commit myself to this person. I want to be married. I want to wear their ring. I want everybody to know whose I am. That's what baptism's all about. Baptism's that point where you make the lifelong commitment to Jesus Christ to be united with him in his death, his burial, his resurrection. And the cool thing is he's rich. You know, maybe you've known somebody who really worked for their wealth. Man, they just, they had achieved and they had worked hard and they built a business and made lots of, lots of money. That's cool. But here's what's interesting thing about getting married is when someone marries that person, they might be dirt poor. They all of a sudden become rich too, right? They don't get it out of earning it. They get it out of pure grace. And guys, when you are married to Christ, you don't get all the riches of heaven because you earned it. You get it out of pure grace. And so we've got to understand the unity that we have in Christ. How do you go back to a life of sin if you know you're united with Jesus and your life is now to reflect his life? Guys, baptism is not just a get-out-of-hell-free card. Baptism is a uniting of your life with his life. 
It means my life is to look like him. How could you go back to the slavery of sin? Let's go to another passage. Love this one. Verse 14. For sin will no longer be your master because you're not under law but under grace. Paul says if you're not going back into slavery to sin, you need to understand grace. Key words in this this part is under grace. You're not under law anymore. You're under grace. Now that seems to be the problem in this passage. They're saying we're under grace, so why not go back and sin? And that is a legitimate response, it seems to be. Let's give a for instance. Let's say you cheat on your spouse. You're unfaithful. Maybe it's a physical relationship. Maybe you're just unfaithful in an emotional relationship. But for some reason, you have cheated on your spouse. And by just absolute wonderful grace, your spouse forgives you. Maybe a difficult process, but they forgive you. That's grace. Now what do you do with it? You really do have a choice. You could say, you know what? I got by with this once. She is so sweet. I could get by with it again. Or you could say, oh my goodness, I didn't deserve this. She forgave me. I blew it. And now, you know, the truth is, I will love her more than I've ever loved her before. And I will do everything I can to never walk down that path of hurt because I don't want to hurt again. Because that's what grace is meant to be in our life. Because grace is not a motivation. Excuse me. Grace is a motivation for righteousness, not an excuse for sin. Now, many of us, we've been in the same position with God. God has been gracious to us. He's forgiven us. And many of us go, well, okay, I've been forgiven, you know. I can go do that again. I can go get drunk again. I can cheat again. I can lie again. I can be a racist again. I can do whatever because God's going to forgive me. Because that's not what grace is. Grace is meant to motivate you out of your mind to want to be righteous. It's not an excuse for sin. It's an abuse of grace. Now, here's what Paul understood. Paul understood when you truly teach grace, there are going to be people who abuse it. But you know the deal is? They don't really understand it. Because if you understand how good God has been to you, you will not want to go into a life of sin. And let's look at one more passage here in Romans 6, verse 11. I love this one. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. The last point he makes here is if you're not going to go back into that life, you've got to understand your new identity. I love the key words here. The key words in this passage are count yourself. Some translations translate it, see yourself. You're not going back to live that way any longer because you know you're so identified with Jesus Christ. You don't see yourself the way you used to see yourself. The Bible would say, and Paul says in this chapter, you're a new person. And I love this contrast. You are dead to sin, dead to it. It means nothing to you. And you have become alive to God. You know, guys, like I mentioned in the beginning, every addiction starts with something that makes you, for whatever reason, feel alive. It might be as sinful as it can be and destructive as it can be, but there's something in doing it or thinking it or looking at it or 
participating in it that brings out just, you're alive. The problem is it diminishes. And you have to get more and more and more to, to satisfy it. Now, here, here's the cool thing. Paul says, don't let your addiction make you alive. Make God make you alive. And the cool thing about God making you alive is it doesn't diminish over time. It increases over time. And so God becomes your addiction. God becomes what you live for. God becomes what gives you life. And Paul says, that changes everything. You're a brand new person. I love the story of St. Augustine. Before he became a Christian, he was a really sinful man, just promiscuous, slept with all kinds of women, from all kinds of marriages to all kinds of prostitutes. But he became a Christian, and he was changing. He had a new identity in Christ. And one day he's walking down the street, and one of the ladies who's been his mistress for years walks up to him and begins to seduce him and begins to invite him. And he says, well, good to see you, but um, I don't do that anymore. And I'm not going to sleep with you. And uh, he keeps walking on, and she's just shocked because this is not Augustine. It's not the Augustine she knew. And so finally, while he's walking away, she yells at him, Augustine! It is I. You know who I am. You know what we've done together. Come on. It's me. And Augustine turns around in his tracks and looks back at her and says, It may be you, but it is not me. It is not I. You may be the same person, but I am a brand new person. And therefore, I don't live that way. Because that's the kind of identity that we must have in Christ. When we understand, guys, we understand slavery. We're going to be slaves to something. You are a fool to walk out of here today and say, you know what? You know, I'm not really going to get fired up for God, you know. I'm not going to go become those really fired up people because they sort of scare me. Um, but I, I'm just going to sort of live my, my nice little life and do what I want. You will become a slave. You will become a slave to something. You need to find your unity your identity, and your grace in Jesus Christ. And and what happens is you become a slave of righteousness and a slave to him. And he is your addiction that will always fulfill you and that will make you feel alive. I love this old passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 15 describes this family, this household. The house of Stephanophis. That have, been, that have addicted them themselves to the ministry of the saints. There's our word. Isn't that a cool thing? To become addicted to the ministry of the saints. That's what excites me about you getting involved in the work of this church. That's what excites me about your opportunity to participate in faith works is because this is our way to shift our addiction. Guys, you're not going to just be neutral. You're not just going to sit home and watch TV. That may become your addiction. You're going to do something. And what would be really awesome is for that addiction to be to be to God and to his ministry. Now, let me ask this. In light of everything Paul says in Romans 6, why is it so hard for us to change. I mean, he gives us all the tools, but most of us say we're still sort of stuck. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous preacher in um, London, put it this way once. He said, how about you lived in a country and 
that had been under slavery for centuries. And then a new king came, and he freed all the slaves. And he put in new governors and new judges and changed the whole system. And you, you were free from it. But in the old slave system, if you were a slave and you were walking down the road, any master could see you and stop you and tell you to do something right at that moment. And you would do it because you were threatened to be beaten or imprisoned or killed. And so under the days of slavery, you had, you had been just completely obedient just to save your life. Now there's a new king, and you have been released. But Jones asked this question. What do you think it's going to be like when you walk down that street the first time? And that old master says, would you go do this for me? Oh, you would be tempted to go do it because you've lived under slavery so long. Guys, the reason change is so difficult is that some of us are addicted to behaviors and thoughts and people that's become very hard for us to free ourselves from. The other reason I think it's so hard is because of secrecy. You've probably heard this quotation. I don't really know where it comes from, but I think there's truth. You are as sick as your what? Secrets. And here's the sad thing, guys is church became the place where we could keep our secrets. In fact, church was the place where we did everything we could to cover up our secrets. Now, a red-letter day in the history of this church is when our brother Ed Bice came before this church. It's probably been at least 15 years ago. And the first time he confessed about his addiction to cocaine and his journey out of it. It opened up everything and it changed a lot about this church because all the secrets were now safe to say. Now that was a scary moment. And I want you to listen to a reading from a book that's just come out by Ed's wife, Barbara, called Just Right. And she talks about that day and their fear about that day and gives us a really cool flashback that many of us will relate to. But as you think about your addictions this morning, would you listen to this reading? Ed and I had been attending Landmark Church for only a short while when our minister asked Ed to give his testimony. Somehow he found out about Ed's drug addiction and subsequent recovery, and he wanted Ed to share that with the church. Giving his testimony was the last thing Ed wanted to do, not only because Ed is not a public speaker, but also because we had finally found a church we both truly loved, and we really didn't want to do anything to mess that up. Keep in mind, Ed and I grew up in a very conservative church. It was a church where you would never want anyone to find out about your sins, much less actually standing up in front of the whole congregation and voluntarily telling everyone. That seemed inconceivable to us. Ed did, however, finally agree, and the day came when he would give his testimony. As we drove to church that Sunday morning, Ed asked me, half-jokingly, Do you think they'll kick us out once they hear about my past? And I replied half-jokingly, I don't think they'll kick us out, but I doubt anyone is going to invite us over for lunch today. When Ed finished his testimony, person after person came up and spoke to him. Some were crying. All were thankful. Some were in recovery themselves, and some wanted to be in recovery. Some had friends, employees, co-workers, spouses, or children who needed to be in recovery. Ed's testimony gave so many people so much hope that day. Satan wanted us to believe we would be ridiculed and ostracized if Ed gave his testimony. Satan wanted us to believe that nothing good could come from sharing our struggles with others. Satan wanted us to believe that no one else in our church could relate to our past problems. But the truth is, we were not alone. 
And no matter what you're struggling with today, you are not alone either. As we drove home from church that Sunday, my mind went back to another Sunday many, many years ago. I was just a young girl. My father was finally able to get sober, and we started attending the conservative church I mentioned earlier. There was a young girl at church with whom I had become friends. She and her mother started attending the church about the same time my family did. Her father did not attend. He, like my father, was also an alcoholic, though I did not realize it at the time. One Sunday, some of us young kids were sitting in church close to the back and far from our parents. The congregation had just finished the routine two songs, prayer, another song, and the minister had only been preaching a few minutes when the church door behind us opened and my friend's father walked in. When I looked at her father, it reminded me of how my father once looked. He was very thin and red-faced. He walked slowly as though trying not to stagger, and he sat down just a couple of pews in front of us. He folded his trembling hands in his lap in an attempt to keep them from shaking. As he walked past us, we caught a slight whiff of alcohol. His hair was neatly parted and combed to the side. It looked wet as though he had just put water on it in an attempt to make it lay down. I remember he had on a white button-up shirt and dark pants, but no coat or tie. And that was unusual to me at the time, because back then men wore coats and ties to church and the ladies wore dresses and often hats. Still, he looked as though he had done his very best to look his very best. He seemed old to me. I know now it's just because I was so young. In reality, he was probably only in his late 30s or early 40s. When I saw him, I immediately felt panic. My mind raced to my own father, and I felt overwhelmed with sad memories. I also sensed fear from my friend, not that she was afraid of him, but that she was afraid for him. I looked up at the pulpit, hoping the preacher did not see him come in, but of course he did. Some of the men in the church sensed something was wrong by the glances from the preacher towards them, and they turned to see what was going on. Then the unbelievable happened. Two of the men rose from their seats and walked to the back of the church. One of them leaned down and whispered something into my friend's father's ear. He got up and followed them out of the building. After about ten minutes, the two churchmen came back in and returned to their seats, but my friend's father never returned. In fact, I never saw him, my friend, or her mother ever again after that day. So many times over the years I've wondered about that man. I've often thought about all the courage it must have taken him to walk through the church doors that day. Was that day the turning point in his life? Was that the day he hit rock bottom? Was that the day that he was sick and tired of being sick and tired? Was that the day that his desperation for help finally outweighed his desperation to drink? How long did he sit in the church parking lot before he was brave enough to walk in? Yet on that day he was escorted out of the one place he sought to find hope. I wonder if he ever dared enter the church building again. I pray he did, but fear he did not. It makes me cry just to think about him. Not only because he was my friend's father, but because he could have easily been my father, too. I am so thankful that Ed and I attend a church today that is a long, long way from the church I attended as a child. I'm thankful we attend a church that is full of grace and hope, where no one is perfect, where people freely confess their sins, are not afraid to ask for prayers, and where they know they are not alone. As a child, I did not understand addiction and alcoholism. All I knew was my father drank too much. 
we swept everything under the rug and didn't talk about it among ourselves, and we definitely didn't share it with others. Being the child of an alcoholic always made me feel different, less than, and often alone. As I write this chapter, I can still feel my friend's fear when her father walked into the church building that day, and I can feel her overwhelming sadness when he was let out. I would give anything if I could turn back the clock to that Sunday many years ago and tell my young friend, My dad is like your dad. I know your fear. I feel your sadness. And you are not alone. What a great, great chapter. Great chapter that is in that book. And that's what we want you to know as we conclude today. That you're not alone. That you're in a church where your sins, your addiction... Your enslavement, whatever you might want to call it, does not have to be a secret. Or you don't become as sick as your secrets because you can openly talk about it and be prayed for. As you go through this chapter, there's a couple of things that I would ask you. The first thing I want to ask you is, who are you going to offer yourself to today? That's what it is. You have a choice. You've got a choice. You are going to offer yourself to somebody or something. You don't have a choice of whether you go into slavery or not. You will. If you've never been baptized, today could be the day where you're completely identified with Jesus Christ and united with him. If you were baptized years ago, this chapter was not written to people who had never been baptized trying to convince them to be baptized. It is written to you and I to remind us of what actually happened at our baptism. And maybe you're a baptized believer that's not living like a baptized believer. And it's time for you to offer yourself back to God. If you don't want to be alone, if you want some people to surround you, if you need some prayers today, why don't you come while we stand and sing?